Well, hello, friends. Grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, be with you. Welcome to Sermons from the Mount podcast. My name is Pastor Mark O'Neill. I currently serve as the pastor of Mount Olivet United Methodist Church in Manio, North Carolina. Each week, we will post here audio recordings of the sermons that I preach from that church. Hope this one is a blessing to you. God bless. Take care. sermon text and gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the first chapter and we'll take a look at verses 18 through 25. So again, this is Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. My friends, this is the word of God for you and I, the children of God. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, a couple of years ago, This is when we were still serving in Camden County. I was part of a program known as the Reynolds Foundation Program in Church Leadership. United Methodist Church clergy from Western North Carolina and North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, North Georgia, and the Florida conferences are nominated by their home conferences. And from all of these preachers, they select 24 to participate in the program. I was blessed enough to have been one of the 24 selected. It's a one-year leadership development program that meets once or twice a month where we discuss ways to better serve and lead our congregations. Part of the curriculum that we went through was a variety of personality profiles and leadership strengths and weaknesses that were meant to give us a better idea of our own personalities, our own quirks, and things of that nature. And it was really no surprise to me that my results showed time and time and time again my tendency to want to micromanage and to have my hands on just about everything I possibly could. If something is going on, I want to be a part of it. I want to be in on it. I want to make sure through my own efforts that the task is completed and gets done. Imagine coach a quarterback getting a play from the sideline. He has three options. He can pass it to a receiver, he can hand it off to a running back, or he can keep it himself and run 
I would have been the quarterback keeping it himself and running it time and time and time again. Because I like to be the one in control. And it's been that way as long as I can remember, honestly. Back when I was still a practicing lawyer and had just entered into seminary, I was taking a class called Mentored Ministry, where they partner you up with a clergy person nearest to you, and you basically follow them around one or two hours a week. The preacher I was matched with, I remember telling me that every day he comes into the office and he starts out by listing all of his to-dos on a piece of paper. But invariably, something's going to happen during the course of the day where you can just take that piece of paper, wad it up, and throw it in the trash can. Because something's going to happen to make all those to-dos impossible to do. But I remember thinking how ridiculous that sounded. After all, if you're the one in control, how could that possibly happen? I mean, if you couldn't manage it or fix it or handle it yourself, I mean, who could? And how could that lack of control not drive you crazy? I want to come back to that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about Joseph. Because our gospel reading this last Sunday of Advent tells us the other version of the Christmas story, doesn't it? Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way, it tells us in verse 18. Unlike Luke's account, Matthew makes no mention of a census or shepherds or multitude of angels. Instead, he tells us of a scandalous pregnancy and a quietly planned divorce and then a dream-induced change of plans. We have here Christmas from Joseph's point of view. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph. He's not recorded as saying one word in any of the Gospels. What we find out today, though, is that he is a descendant of David, and he is a good and righteous man. He seems to be a thoughtful kind of fellow. Because he considered his situation very carefully and he wanted to avoid shaming Mary in any way. So he made a plan to deal with the situation quietly and quickly. He seems to be the kind of man that you would want your son to grow up and be. And the kind of man you would want your daughters to grow up and marry. But Matthew makes it abundantly clear in our story that as righteous as he may have been, as good as he may have been, Joseph lacked one thing, control. He may have been the theoretical head of his emerging household, but he was clearly not in charge. God was, as God always is. And God was working out a story much bigger than Joseph could have ever imagined. Eugene Peterson, in his work entitled Eat This Book, suggests that this is how it is supposed to be for you and I as the children of God. He says, when we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. The challenge for Joseph, for you, for me, is that we tend to think the other way around. We generally imagine ourselves as the central figure in our lives. 
And this is a result of our limited and finite natures. We can only see through our own two eyes, which happen to be laser-focused on our own concerns, our own responsibilities, and our own capabilities. And this leads us to think and act in ways which are remarkably narrow and usually selfish at times. But in this text, God is opening Joseph's eyes to see something bigger. This was the function of the dream that we read about. An angel from the Lord expanded Joseph's perspective to see how Mary's pregnancy was, in fact, the work of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Just as Isaiah had prophesied eight centuries earlier, God was coming to be with his people in the flesh. This child would be God's instrument for saving his people from their sin. He would put his and their and our enemies to shame. And it was this promise that broadened Joseph's perspective. It changed his mind and then determined his course of action. Certainly he was still afraid and he needed a few other dreams to kind of help steady himself, but he was now emboldened to be faithful. And this man without control took Mary to be his wife and served as the adoptive father of Jesus. And in doing so, Joseph fulfilled his smaller part in God's much bigger story. So what about you? Have there been moments in your life, or moments even now, where you are aware of your own lack of control? That as much as you try to manage your families and your holiday schedules, your health, your work, your attitude, our society, and a host of other things, does life not sometimes have a way of putting us in our place and reminding us how limited we really are? And our response to this lack of control often includes unrighteous and selfish behavior. And you can probably think of specific examples in your own life. Well, here's mine. This past Thursday, I woke up and Heidi was still complaining of a chest pain that she had experienced for a day or two prior. We discussed the options of whether she should go see her primary care physician in Elizabeth City or take a trip to the urgent care up the beach. She asked for my advice. And as one who, again, likes to be in control, I did a mental rundown of everything I had coming up on Thursday. Youth breakfast at 7.30. Miss Jean's celebration of life at 2. The senior adult dinner at 5.30. And if there was time, off to Manuel High to see them play basketball against First Flight. All sandwiched in between reading and research to get ready for today's sermon. And because the urgent care was presumably quicker and closer, we thought that would be the better path, and that's what she chose. So I headed off to the youth breakfast that morning, and our daughter Caroline took her to the urgent care. <clears throat> a little after 8 o'clock, I got a text that said they had run an EKG and some other heart tests, and everything seemed fine. They were going to do a chest X-ray just to make sure, but they expected that to be fine as well. Then about 8.30, I get a phone call. It was her. 
She was being sent to the hospital with a collapsed lung. Now, I'm no doctor, so I didn't really know what to expect. But in my mind, I saw this as a minor hiccup to the day. I arrived at the hospital to her room in the AR just in time to hear the doctor explain what the plan was because he thought she was no more than a third or so collapsed. They were going to put her on an oxygen mask for four hours to see if that would take care of inflating the lung, and if so, she would be able to go home. I looked at my watch and slowly started to realize that the day that had been planned out was not going to happen. There was not going to be any controlling of the day by me from that time forward. They ordered a CT scan as a precautionary matter, wheeled her out, brought her back in, and about 45 minutes later, the doctor comes back in, takes the oxygen mask off of her, and says, you're actually at a 50% collapsed lung, and we need to do a surgical intervention. Now, friends, I have been in countless hospital rooms and nursing home rooms and home visits, but again, those are all situations where I have some measure of control. I control when I show up. I control how long I stay. I control when I get to leave. But there would be none of that now. I couldn't fix it. Did I feel helpless? Yes. Was it a little bit aggravating? You bet. And initially, I was uneasy with how now the whole day was shot. I felt guilty for missing Miss Jean's service. I was sad that we would have to miss the senior dinner. I was unhappy that I wouldn't get to see any of the basketball games. And all of those feelings, friends, because of a lack of control on my part, were all admittedly and ashamedly, very selfish. But I needed that. I needed to sit with it and reflect on it and refocus and reorient my thinking even a couple of days later about my perceived need for control because as I did reflect on it, I started to find Comfort. I was reminded of a thing or two. And I started to find this particular lack of control to be actually good news to me. You say, how is it good news? Because of names. When we found out that we were having a son, obviously one of the things you have to decide upon is what is it that you're going to name your child? Now, Being the good Carolina man that I am, I proposed the name Roy Dean for our child. (laughs) In honor of our two favorite basketball coaches. Now, that idea was immediately shot down and with great prejudice. So we changed it. And it seems like there's some name changes going on in our story, doesn't it? The angel says to name the baby Jesus. And then Matthew turns right around and tells us, yep, that's the one, little baby Emmanuel. And no sooner does Matthew write that than we were told, yep, Joseph named him Jesus. 
Jesus, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Jesus, which is it? Do we have to choose? Well, no. Unlike Heidi and I picking one name over another, in this case, friends, no choice has to be made at all. You cannot speak one without invoking the other. Jesus is Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Jesus. And Emmanuel and Jesus is God with us. That name, whether you use Emmanuel or Jesus, is how a lack of control is good news. It is good news because it reminds us that the one who has all control over everything has come to be God with us. When we relinquish control, we can find comfort in knowing that we are not alone, that we are taken care of, and we can be comforted by that. Because God is with us. Not some far-off, uncaring, unfeeling, stone-hearted deity on high. No, here, with you, with me, with all of us. God with us in all our flesh and blood realities and messiness. God with us, nursing at Mary's breast. God with us and learning to eat small pieces of bread and drinking from a cup without spilling milk all down his chin. Christ among the pots and pans, as Teresa of Avila puts it. Christ among the barn animals and then those quirky magi astrologers that show up and then all the rest of the gospel's curious cast of characters. Yes, friends, God with us. God with us with the prostitutes and lepers and the outcasts in whose company Jesus would delight in again and again and again. God lifting the cup of wine to his lips. God with us. God with the little children whose warm brows he touched and blessed. God smiling when a baby is shown to him by a new mother. God with us in all of our ordinary days and times. And God with us, as Jesus would say, to put an end to the book of Matthew, with us even until the end of of the age. God with us always. Emmanuel. And friends, Emmanuel is God with us in that hospital room as all I could do was look on helplessly and as Heidi fighted to stay calm and brave. Emmanuel is God with us in all the texts and calls and emails I got that day and the days after offering support and prayer and care. Emmanuel is God with us when pies and meals and visits and flowers find their way to our doorstep. Emmanuel is God with us when I have conversation with folks here or in the Dollar General or at the Wright Brothers anniversary where I feel just how much our family is cared for. And friends, Emmanuel is God with us when I have to remember for myself the same message I try to bring to you each and every Sunday, and it's this. Ever and always, Jesus stares straight into you with his two good eyes. And he does so not only when you can smile back, when things are going exactly to plan, but most certainly also when your own eyes are full of tears, your mind full of distractions, and your heart full of doubts when things are not going the way that you had planned. In fact, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with you, even in those times when you are so angry with God that you refuse to meet his eyes. Because even when you feel like you can't look at him, he never looks away 
from you. He can't. His name says it all. And so no, I nor Heidi had any control over the situation this week. But God did. In all the ways that I mentioned, in all the ways I did not, God was there. Offering us comfort and hope and love and peace. With his presence and his presence through all of you as you reached out to us. And truthfully, friends, I needed that reminder this week. I don't need to control everything. God's got it. So, friends, as we close, I want you to think about those things in your life that you feel like you have to control, but you can't. And I want you to release those things. Friends, if we proclaim that we believe in God's providence and God's will and God's timing, then we have to be bold enough, friends, to let go and let God, as the saying goes. Find that release of control to be the good news that it is because you are putting it in the hands of the one that made the universe and promises to be with us always. Emmanuel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Until next time, God bless. Take care.